Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, episode 434. This is the weekly podcast about American flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This podcast is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free nationwide online directory to florists, shops, and studios who design with American-grown flowers and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. And thank you to our lead sponsor, Florist Review Magazine. I'm delighted to serve as contributing editor for Slow Flowers Journal, found in the pages of Florist Review. It's the leading trade magazine in the floral industry and the only independent periodical for the retail, wholesale, and supplier market. Take advantage of the special subscription offer for the members of the Slow Flowers community. You can find it at deborahprinzing.com where you can also find the show notes for today's episode 434. Happy New Year 2020, a new year and a new decade. Last week's podcast commemorated the close of 2019 with an extensive year in review episode. And while I couldn't highlight and thank every single person who made last year a special one, I touched on many of the bright spots in our full year of slow flowers. Please go back and have a listen if you missed it. I'm excited to share highlights from the 6th Annual Slow Flowers Floral Insights and Industry Forecast, the 2020 edition. But before I do so, we have a special guest to welcome, Teresa Tibbetts of Dandelion Floral, based in Lander, Wyoming. All during 2019, our 50 States of Slow Flowers series brought you a diverse range of voices and experiences from Slow Flowers members across the U.S., This ambitious series doubled the number of Slow Flowers podcast guests that we brought to you during the course of the year. Thank you to each of our state guests for their willingness to share their personal floral narrative with listeners. Together, their stories amplified the thriving message that our Slow Flowers movement is taking place everywhere and anywhere that people, gardens, soil, and sunshine exist. You can find the full list of our 50 States of Slow Flowers guests with links to the episode in which each appeared at today's show notes for episode 434 at deborahprinzing.com. Today that series comes to a close, even though it's January 1st, 2020. Due to a few scheduling hiccups, I couldn't quite fit in our final state, Wyoming, in 2019. So today, please meet Teresa Tibbetts of Dandelion Floral. Teresa is a flower farmer and studio-based wedding and event florist who specializes in growing heirloom and ephemeral flowers. She also raises xeric natives such as yarrow, coneflower, and rubecchia. And she forages locally for aspen, juniper, and sage. Teresa says, My designs are inspired by nature's form and structure, embracing the whimsical and the wild. The ascetic of the Rocky Mountains is loose and light, balancing the soft with the prickly, the fine with the bold. We take our cues from the deserts and the mountains. An arrangement full of lush, shiny, deep green foliage looks artificial and contrived here, in my opinion, she says. Instead, we embrace the blue grays of sage and juniper, the delicate texture of golden grasses, the twinkling yellow green of aspen. That's beautiful. Let's just jump right in and hear more from Teresa as the 50 States of Slow Flowers series wraps up with the state of Wyoming. Well, I'm so excited to come to the close of our 50 States of Slow Flowers series for 2019 with a stop in Wyoming. And I'm really thrilled to introduce you to Teresa Tibbetts of Dandelion Floral in based in Lander, Wyoming. Hi, Teresa. Hello, Deborah. Th- thanks for saying yes when I ask you to come chat with me about 
What's going on in Wyoming? And you told me you're sitting by the fire looking at a seed catalog, which is like the perfect December activity, isn't it? It absolutely is, yes. <laughs> well, we've never met in person, but I certainly know your work, and I'm so glad you're part of the Slow Flowers community. And um, maybe, Teresa, we could, you could start with um, just giving everyone a snapshot of your business, because you have a lot of facets of interest and talent, and uh, you're blending uh, kind of a farmer and floral uh, facet to your business. Yes. Uh, so I am a farmer florist. And I um, grow here in Lander, Wyoming. It's uh, Zone Four B, very short growing season. Burr. And, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> we have uh, very snowy, wet winters and dry, hot summers. So typical of you know the Rocky Mountain West. And um, I'm what you'd consider a micro flower farm. So I grow in our backyard in about 1,200 square feet, uh, mostly raised beds. And then I also have a 16 by 30 hoop house, which is much needed for yeah. our short growing season. That's great. And um, I also just recently moved into a, a new studio space. So I was originally working at home and I've I've kind of found a studio space um, in downtown Lander that I can do a lot more of my wedding work. So uh, for my services, I primarily focus on growing for weddings. So um, I uh, really love the process of designing, you know, from seed to centerpiece mm -hmm. and uh, it's nice because our wedding season coincides nicely with the growing season. So it runs May through October. And um, so I offer do-it-yourself wedding buckets um, and full-service events where I take care of every detail. So kind of a little bit of everything. Right. And are you primarily, uh, when you design for weddings, are you primarily only using the flowers and botanicals that you've grown yourself or... Do you have other sources? So I, I'd say, okay, so I do, during the summer, mm -hmm. I use all uh, local flowers, so mainly from my garden. And then I also work with other local, smaller growers who are also, um, you know, who, who grow a lot of flowers. And I do supplement sometimes mm -hmm. by ordering um, through wholesalers. Mm -hmm. And I've Recently, now that I have this studio space, I've expanded my offerings a little bit for floral design in the off season. So I'm learning about the whole world of ordering <laughs> it. And it, I do really, really, really miss my flowers. So mm -hmm. it's a whole nother world. <laughs> but the studio space is, is there's no retail component to it, is there? Or do people call you and ask if they can come by and just pick up an arrangement for a, you know, a birthday gift or something like that? Well, it's interesting. It has definitely, um, so I don't have hours. Uh, it's by appointment only because, you know, I'm spending so much time um, at, uh, you know, in the garden growing and I have two little boys. So, you know, kind of handling all of that, I'm, I'm really hesitant to do a retail space where sure. I'm open all the time. However, uh, since I've moved into the studio, I have been taking orders and it's kind of been a pleasant surprise as far as seeing all those folks that, um, you know, get flowers during the summer or, you know, we also have a bouquet CSA that we do. Mm -hmm. And so I see a lot of those customers coming in now and ordering and it works really nicely because they can just call and, you know, we can set that up. And so it's nice to have that flexibility and I've been pleasantly surprised doing a little bit of retail that, yeah. um, you know, pretty fun. Well, it, it kind of, um, gives you a little bit more even income or revenue in the off season that, uh, you wouldn't have had if you didn't kind of expand to expand your, I guess, practices for having to buy in from wholesalers. Um, it's, it's like you're still experimenting with it, but you also have these relationships with customers and they trust you and they trust, they love your aesthetic. So they're willing to, to kind of go that route in the off season. Yes. Yeah. And it's, it really is, 
it's something that I feel like it's an area that I definitely want to grow um, as far as the business. And it's, it's really great. You know, I also offer uh, wreath workshops and different, you know, I want to do more flower workshops now that I have a space to hold those yeah. classes in. And uh, so that's been really fun to, to develop that and have people come in. Uh, you know, it's funny, like for flower farmers, especially, we have all this contact with our customers during the season and then we're kind of shut off <laughs> yeah, exactly winter, especially those of us in you know zone four uh so it's just been so fun to connect with people and and serve them throughout the year so how I, i'm yeah. really excited yeah and i didn't ask you how big is the studio the studio is about 700 square feet so okay. it's it's not too big and not too small so it's um you know, I can fit a class of about eight or 10 and, uh, which I think is, is a really mm-hmm. nice size yeah, and I can still spread out and mm-hmm. do my wedding work in the summer. So it's really great. So Teresa, where is Lander in the state of Wyoming? Uh, what are, is it considered one of the larger markets? Um, you know, I guess for weddings or for population, I don't really know how to ask that question. Yeah, no, I'm just laughing because <laughs> the lander is uh, so most of Wyoming is extremely rural. Right. So there are more pronghorn antelope than people oh in the state. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it, it's a very low populated state. A lot of the towns are small and, and rural. And Lander is um, in the center of the state. We're at about 5,000 feet on the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're considered part of the Yellowstone ecosystem, but we're definitely south of mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's only 7,000 people in Lander. So wow. it's, it's a pretty small town. Um, the next biggest town is Riverton. And I think they have another 12, 15,000 people. So it's it's a little remote. We're definitely out of the way. Uh, the bigger flower markets, I'd say probably the biggest is Jackson Hole. Sure. So there's a lot of pull uh, as far as flowers that way. But um, yeah, but even though I, I think one benefit of being in a rural state where there is a lot of support for agriculture is mm-hmm. that people really do seek out those locally sourced items. So, you know, whether it's local food farmers or now flowers, I really do. I do feel like uh, people see that value and they want you with this little studio space. Everyone keeps coming in and saying, well, we want to support you. We oh. want, we want something like this in Lander. So oh. um I think that is a nice thing about being in a rural area. I love hearing that. And I think you're right. It's like the, the the bedrock of Main Street America was to have these independent um, services and uh, retailers. And, and that's not it's not apparent in lots of parts of the country. So I, I love that there's excitement for your, you know, putting your shingle out, even though it's not retail people can look in the windows and mm-hmm. see what's going on. They know that there's a flower, sh- flower studio there. Yes. Yeah. So tell us about your journey to flowers, Teresa. I don't really even know when you started dandelion as a farm because the farm came first, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. The farm came first. Uh, so uh, before I started, I've worked 20 years as a biologist mm-hmm. and um, and, and I've always had a passion for gardening, uh, both veggies and flowers. And in 2015 was the first year I kind of got an itch to grow a little bit more for the local farmer's market. And um, my oldest son wanted to be involved. And so it was our little project. So that's really how Dandelion Farm was born. He loved dandelion flowers and we have tons <laughs> of dandelions. And I just loved the name as well because, you know, dandelions, they evoke this wonder and charm in people. And, you know, even though they're also considered weeds, everyone loves dandelions. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely one of the, uh, probably one of the top 
five or ten flowers that people can name, even if they, you know, don't know where they learned that. <laughs> That's true. So my son came up with the name, Dandelion oh. Farm. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so that first season, it's, I mean, it was just a big learning curve as far as producing. And I wasn't focused on flowers that first season. I was producing herbs and mainly basil and mint. And I had lettuce. That was my table. <laughs> wow. What? And did you say what year that was? That was in... Uh, 2015. Oh, okay. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And so at the very end of the season, I didn't have much. So I cut a bunch of sunflowers Mm. from the garden. I've always had the native branching sunflowers in the garden for birds. And so I thought, oh, I'll just take these. And they sold out. Wow. And so I took them again and they sold out. And so that fall, I real I did more research and I discovered flower farming and mm. I, I just hadn't really thought about flower farming. It wasn't on my radar and um, basically became obsessed at that mm. point. Mm. <laughs> wow, that's so cool. So, it's like you backed into it almost. It's or it tricked you into being being a flower gro- you know flower grower instead of just a you know, veggie and herb grower. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I, I always tell people the flowers found me because I, all along this journey, you know, every year we've grown more and more and, um, you know, more flowers and offer more services. And I would have never thought I would be doing wedding flowers or design, but it's just the process has happened slowly, but very organically. And, it's it's just been really great also to connect with folks, um, you know, like the ASCFG, the American Society of Cut Flower Growers, mm-hmm. and you know, the Slow Flowers community. All of those communities have really, you know, even though I'm in a rural area, it's it's been a, a little easier to grow with those yeah. resources available. That's wonderful. Um, when I first uh, connected with you, I. Uh, if, you know, with any kind of correspondence, I was working on the Rocky Mountain uh, issue for Florist Review magazine, which ran this past May. And um, we wanted to try to feature kind of what was happening in floral design in all all of the Rocky Mountain states. And so um, at the time, you were using uh, Dandelion Farm and Aurea Floral Design as sort of two separate business names. And I, I think that that's that might have been how we identified you in that article. And um, now you're kind of blending those names, it sounds like, for for just a new rebranding. Yes. So last winter, I, um, I, I had decided, so, you know, I have worked part-time as a biologist mm-hmm. and juggled flower farm and design and everything. And last year I decided okay, I'm going to go full-time next year and just do flowers. Wow. And so part of that is I decided, okay, I want to, I want to work on the branding, maybe, maybe get out of the farm, um, you know, the visual branding of being Mm -hmm. a farm Mm -hmm. and, you know, be a little more fancy pants. (laughs) (laughs) And so I thought, okay, this is what I'm going to do. So I worked um, with the uh, expert and, you know, we went through the whole process, which was really great. And at the end of it, uh, you know, I came up with the name Aria Floral Design. So Aria, it means gold in Latin. Mm. And so Mm. I thought that kind of like reflected, you know, the dandelion and all Mm. of that. Mm. And so um, I kind of went forward with the rebranding and, started on a website and, uh, you know, just kind of was inching out the new branding. But at the same time, I was entering the summer season. So interacting with our CSA customers and new wedding clients and, you know, all of that. And it was, it was interesting because people were just so excited about, Dandelion Farm and the Aria Floral Design just 
a a lot of people weren't saying it mm. correctly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the name wasn't um, it just wasn't sticking. So yeah. yeah. It it was I had gone a little bit too far out, and I think what the one time that that really just came home to me is I I do provide flowers occasionally for a local grocer and the florist there. She said, "Oh, do you know there's another farmer florist?" <laughs> <laughs> You're like, "Really? Who?" <laughs> uh, yeah, and she said, "Oh, it's Aria Floral Design." I said, "That's me." And so, <laughs> oh, no. I, it was. It, and there were also other aspects like having to manage all the farm things because I didn't want to get rid of the farm because I felt like that was really the base and the root of what I was doing. And so I was handling two different social media accounts and the emails and the websites and, and having to explain to folks, Oh, well I do grow at Dandelion farm, but the floral design aspect has this other name and I finally just decided, no, you know, what really did it was when I knew I was going to move into the studio mm, space sure. and I'd have to put a name on the sign right? and the first, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the first thing that came to me was dandelion floral. You know, it has to be dandelion because I've been in this, working in this community for you know, four years is Dandelion Farm. Everyone from the farmer's market knows me and the weddings I've done. And so I cut Aria Floral Design loose and just decided to to combine really that essence of what the business is with a little bit of a little more fancy by saying floral. <laughs> I think it's great. I mean, I, I admire you for going through that exercise. I, I think a lot of, I, as I said to you before we started recording, there's this conversation has been going on, you know, quite a bit among farmer florists. It's like, do we have a different, you know, second brand uh, to separate out the floral design from the growing? And some of it has to do with perception of value, right? That you're, you're mm-hmm. not, you're trying to have a, you know, be fairly compensated for your design services. And so right, I, right. I, I, I like the way you've hybridized it now. And I think you, I think you've been really honest with yourself about dandelion being your strong, the strong brand that people associate you with. And in a nanosecond, people are going to forget that you even had two brands prior to this. So it's perfect that you've, you've made like made this radical decision. And now going forward, you're very clear about, you know, how you're going to market and communicate that brand. And it'll probably be less work for you too. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. One hopes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I think, you know, one thing is I just didn't value how, um, how much people really, loved the local mm-hmm. flowers that mm-hmm. they, you know, just that, that element that I am growing most of the flowers. And so I think that was kind of lost in, in moving away from that. So now I feel very, very good and happy about where I'm at. How old is your son who came up with this name, by the way? <laughs> He's 11 now. Yeah. Okay. So he was like seven or eight when he suggested this to you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Maybe he'll be the junior partner in the business moving forward. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. He's definitely a numbers, a numbers person too. So, and he, but he also loves the growing there. Mm. You know, so, sometimes I feel like, Oh, they're not paying attention to me or, you know, mm-hmm. get them out there for five minutes or 10 right. minutes and they're weeding right. and complaining. But it, it does soak in. They surprise me. Well, I just love your aesthetic. And I, I just pulled up the the uh, quote that I used of yours in the Florist Review article. Can I read it to everybody? It's just, you're so eloquent the way you describe your, <laughs> your, place, your place on the planet. You say, my designs are inspired by nature's form and structure, embracing the whimsical and the wild. The aesthetic of the Rocky Mountains is loose and light, balancing the soft with prickly, the fine with bold. We take our cues from the deserts and the mountains. In my opinion, an arrangement full of lush, shiny, deep green foliage looks artificial and contrived here. Instead, we embrace the blue grays of sage and juniper, the delicate texture of golden grasses, and twinkling yellow-green of aspen. (laughs) 
That's like poetry, Teresa. That's so beautiful. I love, I love that oh. snapshot. You, a picture you painted. Mm-hmm. Oh so, well, thank you. Yeah, you yeah. can write. You can write more of that for me. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and I think that you, in that, in that quote, what you really did was talk about place, and that it, Wyoming is a unique place, and you're celebrating that rather than trying to contrive something that isn't reflective of place. Mm. Yes, definitely. And I think that's something I've had to learn in my own journey, especially with floral design. You know, I started out thinking I had to do things a certain way. And I, I, I think now I realize that there are so many different ways you can approach floral design and you're not, you know, you're, you're either going to find your ideal customer or mm-hmm. you're going to be trying to be something you're not, you know? And so um, I think the the great thing is folks in Wyoming just, you know, they love the Aspen and their bouquets and mm. the sage mm-hmm. and things like that. And so it's really fun to be able to serve them in that way and bring the outside in and have that be a part of their designs. Love it. I love where you're living and I love that you're, you're giving it, uh, you're kind of get, creating a, an aesthetic that people maybe didn't know there was a Wyoming bridal look, but now, thanks to Dandelion <laughs> Floral, they have something to point to. And, and uh, I, it's, I hope you share some more photos uh, that we can include in the show notes so people can see uh, what you're designing and what you're growing. Sure, yes. Wonderful. Anything else I didn't ask you that we should cover before we wrap up our conversation about Wyoming and dandelion floral? Uh, uh, well, I think I'd just like to mention that it, it, you know, there are a handful of growers um, that, you know, we're all kind of, I don't want to say battling, but <laughs> battle gardeners out here sure. far our farmers and most of us are also farmer florists and we're all hours apart, but, um, you know, I feel like it's that slow flowers and local flowers is definitely in its infancy in Wyoming, but I think there's, there's more and more awareness and it's great to see what's, what's happening in the industry as a whole. I think that a lot of florists are, are becoming more aware of, you know, the importance of supporting local and, so it's it's kind of fun to see that bloom in Wyoming as well, even though we're very rural. <laughs> it's such an optimistic uh, message to start the new year on. So I am grateful that you mentioned that and that um, creating community is is one way, in my opinion, that um, amplifies all the individual voices into something that is more noteworthy and more significant in terms of moving that needle. So I'm delighted that uh, you're representing Wyoming and that there are, are, you know, more people joining this, this wave, this floral wave. Um, I hope I get to visit you. It'd be really wonderful to see what you're doing. And uh, I'm not that far away. Washington state is not as that far from Wyoming. So we must try to make that work. Yeah, it's not that far. Yeah. And you could hit a lot of different farms on the way down. Oh, wouldn't that be, that would be (laughs) so fabulous. The road trip. I love it. Teresa, thank you so much for, for your time today and for catching us up on what's going on with your your venture, uh, your farmer florist, florist farmer. I don't know which one comes first. Um, it's been really, it's been really fun to to add this to our 50 states of flower sunflower series and wrap up the year on a wonderful note. Thank you. Thank you. That was terrific, and I invite you to visit DeborahPrinzing.com where you can see photos of Teresa and her flowers for today's episode 434. It has been a privilege to feature this important series, and I thank you for joining me. As I mentioned last week, we missed a few, namely Hawaii and Delaware, but I'll do my best to add voices from those states in the coming months. Next up, I'm excited to share highlights from the annual Slow Flowers Floral Insights and Industry Forecast. 
This forecast began six years ago, and I'm more inspired than ever about the focus of this project. Since 2013, I have tracked and documented the shifts and changes in the slow flowers movement, devoting considerable time and resources during the past several years, while also educating and advocating for locally grown, seasonal and sustainable flowers. As a result, the awareness of our movement has also increased. More farms are producing more domestic flowers, more designers are selecting domestic flowers as artistic elements of their work, and more consumers are asking for locally grown flowers. Traction, momentum, and change can be measured incrementally, so you will notice that in this year's 2020 forecast, some of the topics and key insights represent subtle rather than seismic shifts from past year's themes, or at the very least, an expansion of them. I've titled the forecast Green Horizons. To develop this report, I began by surveying Slow Flowers members and social media followers last fall, asking questions about people's floral businesses, including emerging themes and topics important to them. I drew further insights from my 2019 storytelling, first-person interviews for print and digital Slow Flowers Journal stories, interviews with more than 100 Slow Flowers podcast guests, and attitudes gathered from conversations with thought leaders in floral design, flower farming, and related creative professions. I hope you find these forward-thinking resources important and valuable. I'd love to hear your feedback and suggestions about topics I've missed. You can find the illustrated highlights from this report at today's show notes for episode 434 at com. I've also included free PDFs to download as this report is featured in the pages of the brand new January 2020 edition of Florist Review and in the January-February 2020 edition of Canadian Florist Magazine with additional reporting from our Canadian Slow Flowers community. A sentence jumped out to me a few months ago as I read a Time Magazine profile of Rose Marcario, CEO of Patagonia. It went like this. Today's customers want their dollars to go to companies that will use their money to make the world a better place. A fitting statement given that Patagonia, which recently surpassed $1 billion in annual sales, donates 1% of its sales to environmental groups. To me, that story about Patagonia underscores a theme that resonates with that of our 2020 Slow Flowers Floral Insights and Industry Forecast. Belief-driven buyers choose a brand on the basis of its position on social issues. If you think that quote represents a fringe topic, you're wrong. According to market consultancy Edelman, nearly two in three consumers are belief-driven buyers. We may not all be environmental activists, but according to the Slow Flowers survey, most of you are using your brand to do good, viewing your company's values and mission as precious brand assets as well as marketing tools. This sentiment was well expressed by wedding and event florist Toby Nelson of Toby Nelson Weddings and Events in Langley, Washington, who spoke about sustainable floristry at last year's Slow Flowers Summit, defining it in part as, quote, making better than choices to improve our environmental and social impact. Similar sentiments come from wedding and event florist Becky Feesby of Prairie Girl Flowers in Calgary, Alberta, whose recent Sustainable Flowers Workshop highlighted a greener approach to floristry, including local flower sourcing and chemical-free design mechanics. So with that as our backdrop, let's jump right in and review the top 10 Slow Flowers Floral Insights for 2020. Number one, agriculture-driven design. Diversity of choice is a top concern for designers who want to expand their product knowledge and access to the best seasonally available botanicals. Whether they have growing or gardening experience or simply have a heightened desire to seek more unique choices in the marketplace, savvy florists are lining up more farm direct options and rewarding wholesalers who are motivated to source from domestic growers on their behalf. Minnesota-based Ashley Fox of Ashley Fox Designs notes that a shift takes place when floral artists become closer observers of nature, inspired by what might once have been considered non-traditional botanical elements. My new emphasis is never say never, she says, in that there could be something really common or very mundane that sparks a more complex design when you place it next to another bloom. To that end, Ashley finds herself open to floral varieties she's past shied away from, especially choices grown by favorite local greenhouses and farms, calla lilies, 
Asiatic and Oriental lilies, double petal Gerbera daisies, for example. The value I offer my clients is in how I use those flowers, she says, and on how I keep my eyes open to a shade within a petal or its form. Toronto-based Sarah Nixon, owner of My Luscious Backyard, notes that as a designer and a grower, she needs to plan for a full season of botanical components for her weddings and arrangements. I pay attention to foliages and smaller textural flowers, seed pods, grasses, and other elements that are integral to my design work, she explains. This includes growing varieties to create a range of satisfying color palettes, as Sarah stays connected to trends in color and to flower varieties that may be getting good public relations attention. The next chapter in this shift is being authored by designers who weave the agricultural narrative through their aesthetic and branding from creative collaborations between flower farmers and floral designers to new apps and online resources that help florists learn who is growing what and when and when that's available, the direct connections between the field and the studio are more important than ever. Jamie Reeves of Leaf and Bloom and the Local Flowers Collective, both also based in Toronto, says this, a farmer florist has the unique perspective of having both the eye for design and the knowledge of the plant material. And for those of us who don't wear both hats, the relationships between the farmer and designers allows for a more open discussion on how we can continue to learn and grow new product. Floral designer and author Christian Giel of Cultivated, based in Victoria, British Columbia, echoes these sentiments. She says, having a cutting garden to work from changed my business. Not only did it make my work more sustainable using zero-mile flowers, it also offered more diverse materials to work with, which in turn sparked innovation and fed me creatively. Insight number two, design-driven flower farming. The corollary to insight number one is this. Enlightened flower farmers, also called agripreneurs, are bringing a designer's eye to floral crop selection and planning. I know what colors I grow in spring, what I'm choosing for summertime, and what I'm planting for fall, says Adam O'Neill of Pepperharrow Farm in Winterset, Iowa. I choose seed and grow color for the entire season. The majority of those responding to the Slow Flowers 2020 member survey self-identify as farmer florist at 44%, followed by flower farmer at 43% and floral designer at 36%. Clearly, more florists are open to growing for themselves and more flower farmers are embracing design. The interdependency is increasingly evident for professionals in both worlds, with many floral ventures placing equal weight on both cutting garden or more and design studio. Danielle Shami of Les Fleurs Franktown House Flowers in Wakefield, Quebec, says that after a few years as a farmer florist who grew cut flowers on less than an acre to supply wedding arrangements, she's refocusing on design-driven flower farming. This past year, I teamed up with two local floral designers to supply wedding flowers, she explained. I'm seeing a change in our floral landscape to better suit the needs of designers. Designers who desire more specialty tulip varieties, lisianthus, chocolate lace flower, and other flowers, for example. More flower farmers are breaking into floral design and offering more retail options to customers. Designers are recognizing the quality, charm, and uniqueness of local flowers, and customers are asking for more eco-friendly options, observes Teresa Tibbetts of Dandelion Floral in Lander, Wyoming, who you heard earlier in our 50 States of Slow Flowers segment today. The rise of design-driven flower farmers moves flowers from the commodity level to the couture level, and that elevates all of floristry. Jessica Broyles, a farmer florist who owns Starry Fields Farm in Rockfield, Kentucky, has set a goal to make local flowers accessible to her florists. I want to educate them on how to incorporate local flowers into their designs and to promote local flowers as something extra, something extra that will help set their work apart. Insight number three, on-farm shopping. I've covered innovative farm-to-consumer retail concepts in prior forecasts, including themes such as more farms selling direct, which we noted in 2017, and farms launching direct shipped wholesale and farms shifting into retail, both cited in 2018 forecasts. Now upscaled, on-farm retail has taken the traditional honor system flower cart and reimagined it as a full-service retail destination. Dahlia Mayflower Farm in Trenton, Ontario, 
and Red Twig Farms in New Albany, Ohio, are examples of floral agriculture ventures with robust on-farm mercantile outlets, offering freshly picked flowers, gathered bouquets, and potted plants for eager DIY customers. It's all about sharing an authentic flower farm with nature-craved customers. Most of the inquiries I get these days include, may we come and see the flowers, observes farmer florist Kate Reed of Gray Tabby Flower Farm in Lake Mary, Florida. I think that people are craving some kind of connection with seeing flowers grow. Consumer desire to experience and connect with the source of their flowers is certainly driving expansion of on-farm retail. Equally appealing are flower farmer partnerships with non-floral focused retailers like apparel, coffee shops, and bakeries. Forging such partnerships has been a part of our business model from the outset, says Quebec's Danielle Shami. A local boutique French pastry shop frequently features our flowers. Bed and breakfasts in our Riverside Village also receive a regular supply of our flowers for their breakfast service and bedside tables. Most recently, we've launched a partnership with beekeepers, developing a new hive-to-table concept that involves visits to our farm during honey harvest. At the same time, honey share partners are invited to visit our flower gardens and may purchase bouquets. Insight number four, organic flower seeds. In the 2020 survey, 24% of respondents cited sourcing organic flower seed as an emerging theme for their business. While organic vegetable seeds are widely available, seed sellers have not always been able to source a broader selection of organic flower options for their catalogs. That's changing in small ways, driven by demand from sustainable growers and conscious home gardeners. While we already use most organic seed sources, we will continue to diversify our crops by adding more perennials that will self-sow year after year, explains farmer florist Kate Meyer of Chatham Flower Farm in Painter, Virginia. Denisa Anderson of Merrily Along Floral in Everson, Washington, cites saving her own seeds from her organic cutting garden, as well as purchasing from sellers like Johnny's Selected Seeds and the Florette Seed Line. I'm very interested in organic seeds, but there have been so few suppliers for cut flower growers, says Danielle Shami. I have renewed hope as more people are growing cut flowers organically on a small scale, several of whom have started a sideline in seed production, not to mention the larger seed suppliers who are catering more to organic cut flower growers' needs. I asked Hillary Alger, flower and herb product manager at Johnny's, about the demand for organic flower seeds. More organic flower seeds is a common request we hear, she says. Slowly, we're building a library of organic flower seed options. But as you noted, it can be challenging, mostly due to the limited availability of variety and selection. According to Hillary, for 2020, seven of the 23 new flower seeds and varieties offered by Johnny's are organic. That's 30%. There's great potential in this category, and I expect demand for organic flower seeds will stimulate more options in the marketplace in the future. Insight number five, chemical-free sentiments. Eco and non-toxic floral design was the very first theme in the very first Slow Flowers Floral Insights and Industry Forecast published in 2015. I noted that many Slow Flowers designers and farmer florists were actively rejecting floral foam while seeking new methods, techniques, and mechanics for arranging flower stems. Three years later, in the 2018 forecast, we revisited the topic, highlighting the new chemical-free mechanics for floral design. The conversation continues now in 2020 with more voices and opinions. Floral foam, yes or no? In this year's survey, 66% of respondents indicated their floral practices are based on foam-free options. 25% said they only use foam as their design mechanic some of the time. We're using less and less foam each year and loving the creativity it requires as well as the environmental benefits, says Erin Shackelford of Camas Designs in Friday Harbor, Washington. Concern about the use of plastic and chemically treated products in other aspects of floristry is also being cited. I'm quite intentional in my designs of late to use wire or jute hemp twine in lieu of plastic zip ties, says Toby Nelson. In 2020, I will be working toward using up all of my synthetic ribbons with the intention of moving toward only natural fibers. Calgary's Becky Feesby raised a new and important question. I would love to learn more about how painting and bleaching natural materials affects their ability to be composted, 
which is a comet that highlights future topics to explore. Kristen Giel of British Columbia echoes these sentiments, saying, The rise in bleached and plasticized product over the past few years has led me to innovate to find naturally dried options. Canada's short growing season means farmers are drying product for year-round use, extending their sales into the off-season. Sustainability, chemical-free practices, waste reduction, and conscious sourcing will continue to move toward the mainstream floral marketplace. A growing niche of floral professionals want to do the right thing, and they want to communicate their mission to customers and clients who will reward those values with their patronage. Insight number six, collections as a marketing tool. From flower farms narrowing their focus to what sells best, to florists branding a distinct aesthetic, there are two schools of thought at play this coming year. Do you diversify by growing more floral varieties? 46% said yes. Or do you narrow the focus by growing only a few key floral types? 39% said yes. Do you brand or market a specific crop, floral variety, or design style? Those were others' top survey answers. Respondents place nearly equal balance on doing one thing well and offering more choice as they seek that sweet spot of profitability. Morgan Anderson of the Floriculture in Scottsdale, Arizona, has adopted floral collections as a strategic marketing tool for serving her customer base, which are largely out-of-town corporate event planners whose business brings them to desert destinations near her. Morgan likens the seasonal botanical collections to couture collections of fashion houses. Forming a seasonal collection based on a muse of my choosing is an unbound artistic outlet that has led to becoming one of the floriculture's strengths, she says. Now, they are also a strategic marketing opportunity that evokes my signature style for clients to enjoy, and it's working. At Harmony Harvest Farm in Wires Cave, Virginia, floral collections are used as a farm-to-florist direct marketing tool, says Stephanie Auville. Our color-based boxes include full collections of 100 stems or half collections of 50 stems, allowing florists to purchase their color palette and receive a heavenly mix of fresh, diverse ingredients that are as functional as they are stunning. Boxes include focal flowers, filler flowers, and other unique varieties, with the intention that a single collection contains all the ingredients to make stunning, well-rounded arrangements, she says. With palette names such as soft, essential, vibrant, Blanc, which is white, or organized by season, Harmony Harvest Farms collections are intended to augment the staple botanicals their floral customer already sources from local wholesale outlets. Insight number seven, one too many, a monobotanic aesthetic. The term monobotanic has crept into my consciousness in recent months, cited by a few designers as a fresh version of the tone-on-tone aesthetic. Single variety bouquets were once synonymous with the roundy-moundy style of the 90s. The new, fresher take features single variety stems arranged in a voluminous or loose aesthetic, elevating focal flowers or delicate accent flowers alike. Monobotanic styling places the focus on texture and shape and can be whimsical, sophisticated, or dramatic, quote, allowing the flowers to stand alone and be noticed, observes farmer florist Lynn Winmeyer of Home Place Fields in St. Joseph, Missouri. Lori Hines, AIFD, of A Bloom Limited in Walkersville, Maryland, notes, we're having requests for lots of foliage with only one type of flower incorporated into the designs. Then there's the touch of contrast mentioned by Blair Lynn of Sweet Blossoms, LLC, in Frederick, Maryland. She says, I am liking monochromatic and monobotanical for its simplicity, but I find I gravitate toward a look that also has a pop of contrasting color in it. If you have a singular sensation to showcase, work monobotanic-style bouquets and arrangements into your portfolio and see what new excitement you create with clients. Insight number eight, polychromatic palettes. By the time you hear this report, the Pantone Color Institute has announced classic blue as the color of 2020, influencing everything from floral palettes to home furnishings to kitchen appliances. For the Slow Flowers community, I heard predictions for a polychromatic rainbow of hues for 2020. I see nature's colors across the spectrum, says one respondent. I have had several wedding inquiries and they've all been multicolored hand-tied bouquets, says Stacy Schmidt of Narrow Trail Farm. She's hoping that brights are coming back. 
Kelly Shore of Petals by the Shore in Damascus, Maryland, says color blocking in design will become more visible in 2020. Our survey reflects a slight nod to the golden hues of yellow, with 23% of respondents predicting shades across the yellow continuum. Butter yellow, lemon, mustard, antique gold, coffee, tan, taupe, citron, chartreuse, and honey were all cited. Other than yellow, there seemed to be no major standout, thanks to every color of the rainbow receiving between 10 and 15% of the forecast vote. What did that tell me? I've decided that rainbow palettes, more aptly named polychromatic florals, will wow the marketplace in 2020. It's not for everyone, of course, but even Stephen Moore of Seattle-based Sinclair & Moore, the maestro of neutrals, designed an unforgettably prismatic wedding, published by Martha Stewart Weddings in 2015, which he called the Rainbow Bouquet. High contrast market bouquets built on variations of the primary colors red, yellow, and blue have made some designers wary of using bold, saturated colors together, lest it appear to cheapen their work, observes Kristen Geel of Cultivated by Kristen. The trend I see in polychromatic arrangements is color shifting over the arc of the piece, blocking analogous colors together and placing them alongside their complement in an arrangement. For example, moving a design from pink to coral to orange, and then using purple to up the visual excitement. While inspired by a colorful world of botanicals, I love what I'm seeing from floral designers, farmer florists, and growers whose penchant for petals with pigments is on the rise. So let's love all hues in 2020. Insight number nine, shifting forms, geometric, deconstructed, and reconstructed floral design. With 43% of our survey respondents predicting that 2020 will see a sustained, loose, soft, and fluid floral aesthetic, There's also an indication that asymmetrical geometric forms and deconstructed, reconstructed silhouettes are emerging. Exaggerated linear shapes may be influenced by ikebana, or they may be a continuance of transparent open forms and shapes as we highlighted in the 2019 forecast. The more airy deconstructed design work is not what I mainly do, but it is what I see emerging more and more and I would like to explore further says Danielle Strawn of Jolie Blooms and Designs in Bloomfield, California. Creating from local farm-grown flowers entirely lends itself to the loose or natural aesthetic, enhancing or highlighting the natural curves of each stem, and that's a motivator in my design process, observes Lynn Windmeyer. Amy Balsters of Amy Nicole Floral in Alexandria, Virginia, cited floral-focused and open-form designs. And Rachel Johnson of San Francisco-based Simply Grounded explains her thoughts this way. She says, I am a Sogetsu Ikebana designer, and this formative training has set my aesthetic toward exploring each flower, leaf, and branch for its unique sculptural potential. The design concept of dismantle and rearrange is one we explore over and over again to expose the unexpected beauty within. Focus on an original aspect gives clarity to the rest of the design and the purpose of each extra element. I predict this aesthetic will increasingly excite and energize floral customers yearning for something new. Insight number 10, responding to climate change. 44% of our survey respondents say they are adjusting their growing practices to adapt to climate change. The variables of changing weather and natural disasters have disrupted growers across North America, with extremes ranging from drought and fires to hurricanes and flooding. We're working with the seasons and dry conditions by utilizing as many native varieties and plants adaptive to our region, notes Stacy Schmidt of Narrow Trail Farm in Baldwin City, Kansas. There is still a lot of work to do to promote non-standard varieties to consumers. All of our future improvements are about water control due to climate change impacts. Use of natural resources, alternate energy sourcing, and the adoption of restorative agricultural practices are factoring into the decisions of many of our members. Flower growers are not the only ones challenged by unpredictable weather or climate patterns. Indeed, everyone is adapting, as florists who crave date-specific botanical varieties know now more than ever that there's the potential for a freak summer hailstorm or unseasonably early frost to wipe out the perfect planning for a client's wedding. So what are people doing about this reality? I'm looking to extend the seasons with different varieties that can take our heat and humidity, says Florida-based Kate Reed of Great Tabby Flower Farm. 
adds Teresa Tibbetts. I'm working with the seasons and dry conditions by utilizing as many native varieties and plants best adapted to the Rocky Mountains extreme climate and short growing season. There's still a lot of work to do to promote non-standard varieties to consumers though, she says. In Seattle recently, event florist Lisa Dunton of Lisa Dunton Studio convened the Floral Biz and Climate Change, a roundtable discussion for her peers. Rather than feeling helpless about her worries, Dunton says she decided to create a chance to air our thoughts about our role in the climate emergency and to strategize about our next steps. Because of her heightened awareness, Lisa has also taken steps in her business. I made a decision at the beginning of 2019 to only source West Coast flowers with a little bit from Hawaii thrown in. I've let my clients know, and I've also made a point to talk about it with them, and I've told them, hey, things might start to look different, but here's why. And all of my clients have been really receptive. With decades in the floral marketplace, Lisa says she can measure her personal shift from long-distance sourcing to finding design ingredients closer to home, and that also includes foraging. I've also foraged at least 15 to 20% of what I put in my arrangements now, so that's hyper-local, she says. Kristen Giel adds this, designers are increasingly savvy about provenance. I believe the turn toward using forage materials is a response to climate change. Place-based awareness begins with knowing one's ecosystem, what plants are invasive, say, and in harvesting those and disposing of them responsibly. I've tracked the rise of foraging for years and noted the comeback of modern everlastings and dried flowers in the 2016 Slow Flowers forecast. As more designers embrace a new aesthetic, perhaps one silver lining to changing climates is our willingness to work more closely with the seasons rather than trying to outsmart Mother Nature. Well, that's it. Ten insights for you. It takes a full year to observe, listen, document and evaluate the input for this report. And I thank everyone who took the time to share their their thoughts with me. You can be sure I've already started a folder for 2021 and I could certainly use your help. So please share your ideas and trends that you're seeing with me. Get in touch at deborahprinzing at gmail.com. Before we close, I want to draw your attention to a couple additional pieces of news. First, Slow Flowers leads off an insightful report that just appeared on December 24th in the international publication Floral Daily, published out of Holland. The article is headlined, Slow Flower Growers Stand United Across States. Authored by editor Jan Jacob Meeks, the piece starts out with these opening lines. A 6% rise in wholesale value, 8% more producers, and an increase of 12% in acreage. The report card for U.S. floral culture is looking pretty good when comparing 2018 to the situation three years earlier from the USDA National Agricultural Statistics Service. So things are looking up for growers in the U.S., but will it remain that way? And what are the challenges and opportunities the industry can expect to see in the near future? more domestic cultivation. Deborah Prinzing is the founder of Slow Flowers, a community-based branding and media campaign that advocates for the floral industry and its consumers to embrace local seasonal and sustainable flowers. She's noticing not only an increase in the amount of domestic growers, but also more interest in the Slow Flowers movement. We have continued to experience audience and participation growth in all channels. The term Slow Flowers is more widely recognized than ever before. In the four years since we began subscribing to Keyhole, an independent tracking service, the hashtag Slow Flowers has generated more than 160 million social media impressions from June 2015 to present. Wikipedia published an entry about Slow Flowers in April 2019, reflecting a new level of mainstream popularity for the concept of domestic and sustainable floral culture. There's lots more, and you'll want to read the full article. I'll share a link in today's show notes. Comments from our sponsor, ASCFG, are included, as are quotes from Slow Flowers members, Ara Benzacane of Florat, Rita Jo Schultz of Alaska Perfect Peony, Jamie Rhoda of Harvest Home Flowers, and Val Shermer of Three Toads Farm. In all, a snapshot of optimism for the Slow Flowers movement in the year to come. 
And here's an update about the Slow Flower Summit. First of all, our early bird registration promotion for the fourth annual Slow Flower Summit has closed as of December 31st. Nearly 50 of you took advantage of early bird pricing, and we will sell out the conference at 150 registrations. So don't have fear of missing out. You'll want to make your way to slowflowersummit.com to learn all about the many opportunities to attend and participate June 28th through 30th of 2020 in San Francisco. The entire program is designed to serve you. Slow Flowers members will still enjoy discount pricing up until the day of the summit. Check out the details of the full itinerary, speakers, and two and a half day program at slowflowersummit.com. I can't wait to see you there. Next week, we'll start a new rotation of sponsor spotlights. But today I want to again say thanks to the amazing sponsors who supported us in 2019. Arctic Alaska Peonies, the Seattle Wholesale Growers Market, Longfield Gardens, Johnny's Selected Seeds, Syndicate Sales, the Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers, Mayash Wholesale Florist, Northwest Green Panels, and Farmers Web. We have a vital and vibrant community of flower farmers and floral designers who together define the Slow Flowers Movement. As our cause gains more supporters and more passionate participants who believe in the importance of the American cut flower industry, the momentum is contagious. I know you feel it too. I value your support and invite you to show your thanks with the donation to support my ongoing advocacy, education, and outreach activities. You can find the donate button in the column to the right at deborahprincing.com. The Slow Flowers podcast has been downloaded more than 562,000 times by listeners like you. Thank you for listening, commenting, and sharing. It means so much. Thank you all. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of the Slow Flowers podcast. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more American-grown flowers on the table, one vase at a time. And if you like what you hear, please consider logging onto iTunes and posting a listener review. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. The Slow Flowers podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brenlin. Learn more about his work at soundbodymovement.com. Thank you.